0: The talk of planet Earth. Now, are you ready? This is TalkZone.com. Internet talk radio. New message. It's showtime. TalkZone.com. Now, The Dr. Robbins Show. Talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Dr. Robbins Show. We bring you the latest info on medicine and health stories. I'm a doctor, and this is a real medical show. We don't really sell anything on the program. My co-host is social worker Susie Robbins. You can email us at doclarryrobbins at AOL.com. We have an exciting show today that includes depression and heart disease, herbs containing bad things such as heavy metals, marital bliss is good for your health, and a whole lot more. Now, starting out with depression and heart disease, there was a new study indicating that the antidepressant citalopram, or Celexa, helps depression, uh, particularly in those with heart disease. Psychotherapy was not all that effective in the study, but usually therapy does help. Previous studies have shown that antidepressants not only help depression in heart patients, such as after a cardiac bypass, but that they improve mortality as well. So you could actually make a physical case for people living longer with antidepressants. People with bad hearts or after bypasses may indeed live longer if they go on antidepressants. Why does this happen? Is it because the antidepressant can relieve stress, or is it due to an effect that the antidepressant has on the bloodstream, such as uh, acting as a mild blood thinner that's possible. Uh, we don't really know. But the bottom line is there's a number of studies now indicating that you can make a physical case, not just quality of life, for antidepressants in those with uh, cardiac heart issues. Now over to my co-host, Susie Robbins. Any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, Larry, um, why is this uh, focused on heart heart surgery and then the possibility or the prevalence, actually, of depression. Is there an organic reason for that?
1: Well, I think that in the end we have the real organic reason, which might be that the antidepressants do thin the blood a little bit or some other effect on serotonin versus helping depression, anxiety, or stress or anger. And I think it's a a complicated issue why antidepressants might help people with heart problems, if somebody is chronically angry, uh, they get more heart problems. That's been shown. They get more heart attacks, and that makes sense. So if they go on an antidepressant that modifies that anger, that decreases the anger, they may not get the heart problems, but we don't have all the answers as far as why do the antidepressants help.
2: Well, you know, we were talking about in terms of heart disease, what about if person uh finds out that he or she does have heart disease and their cardiologist suggests or tells them that they need to have a procedure, say they have bypass surgery. Does, in fact, then the depression typically go away on its own?
1: Well, it's interesting. After bypasses, uh, about a third of the patients get depressed uh, and memory problems are also common. But over time, the depression often gets better, particularly with antidepressants. And in one study, they put everybody after a bypass on antidepressants, and then another group uh, was put on placebo, and the people put on antidepressants had less recurrent heart attacks, which makes another case for, in some patients anyway, ways antidepressants. And then we have to look at people's previous history. If they have a long history of depression, we're more likely to use antidepressants. If they were never depressed and are not particularly depressive and they have heart surgery or heart problems... I wouldn't just add an antidepressant in the mix just randomly because they're on other medicine and antidepressants have all of their own side effects uh, from apathy to spaciness to sexual side effects, which is an issue with heart patients anyways. So we do pick and choose who goes on the uh, antidepressants after heart problems.
2: Well, heart heart surgery certainly is a major surgery such as bypass, but what about for other major surgeries that somebody might have? Is there a higher uh, degree then of of somebody becoming depressed afterwards?
1: Well, I think in general not as much as heart problems. Uh, There's this old syndrome being a cardiac cripple. Some people get a heart attack or have a bypass and are so fearful and anxious that um, it's a bigger problem when they think their ticker is giving out than if they have gallbladder surgery or something on their stomach. But it depends on if people have major colon surgery and it changes their lifestyle. That can be depressing, and a lot of people... Depends what the fallout from the surgery is as far as depression. Now, segueing on to another interesting study, it was heavy metals in some herbal products. And in this interesting study, they looked at St. John's wort. Now, St. John's wort... The uh, technical name for the active ingredient is hypericin. St. John's wort is used for depression mostly, and a number of studies have indicated that St. John's wort is as effective as some of the antidepressants, but it's not without its own side effects. And the problem is quality control of the herbs. In various studies, such as uh, from Consumer Reports, Consumer Labs, cetera, uh the they looked at 10 different Forms of St. John's wort and other herbs, and found very widely uh, varying amounts of the active ingredient. In some of them, there was no active ingredient at all. So, with some of the herbs, it is buyer beware. Well, in this interesting study, uh, 10 brands were analyzed by ConsumerLab.com, which is a terrific outfit, and four out of the 10 met good quality standards for the St. John's wort, but some of them contained cadmium which is a heavy metal, and others had lead. And interestingly enough, on another uh, standpoint, we have mentioned on the show before that multivitamins were analyzed by consumerlab.com, and the multivitamins uh, tested 8 out of the 20, I believe, showed increased lead levels. I don't know what lead is doing in multivitamins. So uh, interestingly enough, um, Centrum Silver came out very good in that study, so I tend to recommend Centrum Silver. So in this study, some of the St. John's wort preparations had too much cadmium, too much lead, and not enough of the active ingredient. So before on the show, we've talked about herbs, and it's buyer beware, cavad emptor out there. You can get too much of something. You can get too little of something. There's different species, different weather, uh, different soil content. So it's not that they're bad farms or anything. But it's more difficult to control. Susie, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think it, it makes, should make us all feel a little bit more of buyer beware. I know I love going to Whole Foods and going up and down the aisles and thinking about all this wonderful organic produce that I'm buying. And then I get to the uh, health aid area and you see all these vitamins and herbs. And, you know, I kind of feel like when I'm there, you know, oh, everything here must be pretty healthy. I'm in, I'm in Whole Foods. But it does make you wonder, when there's so many different brands for different herbs and vitamins and minerals, how do you know which ones to get?
1: You know, you don't, and that's a great point. I walk through Whole Foods or GMC and all these bright, shiny bottles with, with claims on them, and this helps this and that helps that, and it's sort of like they're highly tested and it's like drugs, but they're not. They're not watched after nearly as much as people think they are. They're not nearly as tested. The claims uh, turn out very often to be bogus. It really is difficult to sort out truth from, from fiction with a lot of the herbs and the claims. And it's been a bad season, a bad year for a lot of vitamins and a lot of herbs. For instance, for about 50 years, echinacea is a commonly taken herb for colds. And they did this, uh, and it, it was the typical claims, well, echinacea helps cold. They sold... Billions, not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions of dollars worth of echinacea in the last 50 years for colds based on just claims and bogus studies. Well, finally, they did this remarkable study last year where they paid people, get this, to sit in a hotel room for seven days, get the cold virus dripped into their nose. So they guaranteed got a cold. They marked down every cough, sniff, every sniffle, and some took echinacea, some took placebo. And at the end of, it was a large study, hundreds of patients. They, at the end of the study, they concluded uh, it was a very uh, high-level study for a lot of money done by um, a great outfit, and they concluded that echinacea didn't do any good for colds at all. That's the kind of studies we need. It was remarkable that they could do that study in the United States in this day and age, uh, with all of our laws and safeguards, et cetera, et cetera, but they did it. So you have to really be careful and um, with a healthy do- dose of skepticism when you're in that herbal aisle.
2: Well, it's my understanding that the FDA does not regulate or control uh, the herbs that we purchase in the stores. Uh, so how are we supposed to figure it out when we're in the store and we want to get something other than a regular general vitamin we want to get some kind of herb what are we supposed to do
1: it's very tough you know to sort it out it's tough um, even having studies with drugs to sort out what works and not but here we have so many claims and the herbal business and vitamin business is so huge and the money is so huge that uh, the claims uh, get ridiculous Uh, again it's not regulated like people think it is you know, in my own uh, little practice in headaches, we use some herbs, and I like the herb Patatelax is very good for headaches. But the most commonly used one has been feverfew, which I like. It's a nice, safe herb. But in the studies, when they got around to doing formal studies after decades of people using feverfew, millions of people using feverfew, they found that it works a little better than placebo, maybe in some people, uh, but it's very iffy. Uh, so we really need the large-scale studies, and the problem is that these take millions of dollars, and most of the herbal com- companies just don't have the kind of bucks that we need to do it. Susie, how about your experience with herbs for headaches?
2: Well, I have tried patatelex. I actually uh, started using it about a year ago when I was getting um, many headaches as I was beginning to uh, beginning in, in menopause. I felt like I was taking too many tripped hands so I decided to try Patatelex, and for me anyways, it really didn't work. Uh, maybe I didn't give it long enough time, but it just didn't work, and I would have liked – I actually had the hope that it would be nice if an herb could help me out, but it didn't.
1: Now on to another topic. There's an interesting study on uh, good marriages versus stressful marriages and uh, offsetting physical problems. The uh, people in stressful jobs show a rise in their average blood pressure over one year if they have a poor relationship with their spouse, this study showed. Conversely, people experiencing job strain who have good marital relationships saw their blood pressure fall by the same amount. Individuals reporting high levels of job strain who had low marital cohesion or problems with their marriages had an increase in their blood pressure, the top number in a blood pressure reading going up by three or four points. On the other hand, those with good marriages who were experiencing job stress had a lowering of their blood pressure. So, marital happiness leads to a lower blood pressure. Previous studies have also indicated that happy marriages lead to less heart disease, for one, and other serious uh, medical illnesses. It all makes sense to me. I'll turn it over to my co-host, wife, and social worker, Susie Robbins. Uh,
2: in that order. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I do agree with you. I think I think most people would. And to me, it speaks of it's all about relationships, and this is just one relationship, which is obviously healthy for both for both spouses when it's a good relationship when there's good communication. Um, You know, aren't there also statistics that you hear about that people who are single, and obviously for everybody out there, this doesn't apply, this is to everybody, but it's just there are some um, numbers that people who stay unattached or single typically have a little bit higher rate of of, um, unhealthy life habits and earlier death if they are single versus married?
1: Well, that's interesting. Uh, in general, studies have indicated that single people get more serious health problems, particularly if they're isolated at older ages. But of course, it does depend if, if people are in a relationship on the quality of the relationship.
2: Well, so are we saying that is it the optimal is having a, is having a, a very good or a good uh, marital relationship? but then a notch down, is it better to have a, an okay or maybe not such an okay relationship versus being alone?
1: Well, I think not a not okay relationship, if it's stressful, it's, it's probably better to be alone. Uh, but an average relationship, uh, and in those studies, they did include a lot of people who had long-time marriages that weren't terrific but weren't bad. I think that still does help people's physical uh, problems.
2: Well, you know, again, it kind of all goes back to relationships, no matter, you know, if it's a relationship, a marriage, a relationship with a friend. Um, what happens when sometimes when people, when their spouse either dies or the people get divorced? What do a lot of people do? They go out and they get a pet uh, because they don't want to be alone. They want to continue to have a relationship with somebody or something else.
1: Now, that's that's very interesting as far as getting a pet. I think that pets can be marvelous, particularly for older folk who are alone. And dogs and cats sometimes are daunting. They're great pets, but sometimes it's too much for people. I particularly also like birds. Uh, we have dogs, uh, but I also like birds, uh, particularly the little bigger birds. You don't have to get a huge parrot. Um, I've had canaries, and they're okay, but uh, cockatiels and... Um, Quaker parrots or Quaker parakeets are really very good uh, pets are easier to take care of than dogs and cats. And they've actually done, stu- well, they've done studies on everything. But they've done studies on this, and people who get pets, who have a relationship, are healthier and happier than people who are isolated. Now, Susie, we do have um, two cute little dogs. We have a standard poodle named Snoopy and a little guy named Peanut, who's a Bichon Poodle, and weren't we going to bring Snoopy one day to become a therapeutic dog to help people, like in hospitals? What happened with that?
2: Well, actually, maybe you've put it out of your mind, but I, I actually signed up to take this course where you bring your dog. First thing they do is assess to see if your dog would actually could even be considered to become a therapeutic dog. So, Snoopy and I trotted over to the local high school, signed up for the uh, a one day only. Um, session to see if this would even be possible. And soon after we got there, I realized along with the uh, trainers there that Snoopy was not going to be a therapeutic dog. You know, he's a big poodle. Uh, Not that the size was a problem, but he was just too hyper. He was jumping all over people and uh, he wasn't really doing very well with the commands either. So we were told at the end of the session it wasn't going to work out, which was... I was a little disappointed, but um, you know, I did realize when I was seeing a lot of the other dogs there that some dogs are made to do it and some just aren't.
1: Yeah, I think it's just like people. Dogs, birds, they have their own personalities. Now, our ne- next interesting topic is obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. And there was an interesting study looking at women with OCD after giving birth. And we also want to talk about OCD in kids. Now, obsessive-compulsive disorder is common. It's closely linked with anxiety. And the hallmarks of it include hand-washing, uh, germ-phobias, ruminating where you can't get a thought out of your head, uh, compulsions such as hand-tapping or foot-tapping, checking, checking locks, checking doors, checking ovens at night. And it often comes out with puberty and increases with stress, and the usual therapy for it is uh, therapy and uh, medications, such as the antidepressants. It's actually very genetic, and um, you know personally, I remember my grandfather very, very anxious, probably had some OCD, and I remember my mom. We'd be almost at the airport, and we'd be flying back home, driving back home at the speed of light to check the oven because she was sure the oven was on. So. We look at checkers, hoarders, people who just can't throw anything away. Now, this one study looked at women after giving birth, and about 4% developed OCD after giving birth, or it came out. It was an in increased risk after the first child. And these women had obsessive fears of germs and some obsessive thoughts, uh, sometimes about hurting the baby, was common. They had cleaning obsessions and checking was very common, checking of locks, checking of the oven, etc., etc. So besides postpartum depression, we think of OCD also because it can be treated, and a lot of women don't mention it to anybody, are embarrassed or afraid to. Outside of therapy and medicines, I do like a couple of the books. One of them is in uh, second or third edition, Brain Lock, which is a great book on OCD. And we also want to talk a little bit about OCD in kids. Susie, any obsessive thoughts about OCD?
2: I have plenty of them, actually. Um, Before I I say much, I'd like to also preface it all by saying that as you're talking about your grandpa, I also have had it run in my family. My dear Uncle Ernie, who passed away a few months ago, while he may not have known himself that he had it, Looking back now, he most likely did just because of his obsessive checking of locks and um, and doors and things like that. Um, but I have actually seen kids, uh, in my experience as a social worker in high school, with this obsessive-compulsive disorder. And I think what's probably, to me, the most important thing for people to realize, if they suspect it in themselves or in a family member, is to understand everything they can about the disorder and get some insight. Because initially, for the young person going through it, they're thinking, am I crazy? What's wrong with me? Why am I doing these things? Something is really, really wrong with me. And I think it's of utmost importance that the family... Uh, get some knowledge about it, maybe reading the book you described, Brain Lock, seeing a therapist so that there can be some perspective put on it and an understanding that no, no, you're not crazy. Um, this is something that, that can be tamed, that can be understood and can get better. You know, and I, when you bring up OCD, you know, and we do th- know that the, the term is obsessive compulsive disorder. Um what that means is is that there's an obsessive part to disorder and then a compulsive side to it. Um, to give you an example, let's say a young teen might be thinking, oh, something really bad is going to happen to my dad. Uh, my dad's going to get hurt. I need my dad. I, this can't happen. So what that person will do is they'll obsess about something bad that could happen, and then they actually follow through with a compulsion which in their mind thinks they're erasing that obsession, which could be bad. So, for example, they're thinking about something bad that might happen to dad. The compulsion would be then to wash their hands right away. But soon after that, the obsession comes back again, which means then they're going to be washing their hands again and again and again, where it's almost like uh, a cat running around trying to get its tail. They're trying to, to get at it, but they can't.
1: You know, in thinking about OCD, there is a huge spectrum of OCD from mild where very often people don't need medicine or treatment particularly to severe where people are in bed and uh, severely um, disabled with their OCD. And there are a lot of things going on in the brain in people with OCD. Studies have shown this. Uh, There's a whole host of things uh, going on in different parts of the brain. And the medications can help, but you often do need higher levels of the antidepressants to really help the OCD. Therapy can help, and the problem is some people have refractory, tough, severe OCD. They've done surgery. There's other bizarre treatments like psilocybin. Recently there was a report where it worked for severe, but it can be disabling. That's the end of the second segment of the Dr. Robin Show. We'll be right back. We are all about interesting medical info and stories. You can email us at doclarryrobbins at com. That is D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. Coming up, we'll talk about binge drinking and drug abuse, which is climbing in college kids. We'll talk about drugs off the Internet. Uh, is it a good idea? There's many problems. Kids with certain mental illnesses, uh, they're often rejected, and a whole lot more. So stay with us, folks.
0: Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com.
1: We are back with binge drinking and drug abuse, a problem on campuses. In a new study, about half of U.S. college students binge drink or abuse drugs and the number who abuse prescription medications, such as painkillers, is up sharply. The study, issued by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University in New York, provides a detailed look at substance abuse among colleges, uh, college kids based on surveys, interviews, and other research. This study did find that 49% of full-time college kids binge drink which is consuming five or more drinks at a time, or abuse prescription drugs such as painkillers or illegal drugs like cocaine and marijuana. That translates to 3.8 million students binge drinking or using prescription drugs or cocaine and marijuana. Now, the incidence of abuse of prescription drugs like Vicodin OxyContin is going way up also. Wow, is everybody binging? Now, from 1993 to 2005, the proportion of students who abused the prescription painkillers like Percocet, Vicodin, OxyContin rose more than 300% to about 3% of the kids, which is 240,000 students abusing those. Abuse of stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall doubled to almost 3% and the abuse of sedatives or tranquilizers also rose. Now, this is not new. Back in the 60s and 70s, kids abused Valium and the tranquilizers also, but it was less. During the same period, daily marijuana use more than doubled to 4% of kids, which is 300,000 overall. And overall use of other illegal drugs, such as cocaine and heroin and meth, rose by half to 8%. So it seems to be increasing rather than going the other way, despite all of us talking about it and our war on drugs. What's really troubling is the increase in the intensity of drinking and drug use, not the proportion of college kids who drink and binge drink, but the excessiveness and the intensity. Susie, what do you think?
2: Well, the surprising... um a uh, piece of that is the painkillers. You know, I think we all recognize that there's a lot of too much, obviously, obviously binge drinking going on in campuses and drug abuse, and for that matter, even the um, uh, the other medicines such as or um, oh, what am I thinking of? Well, the valiums, the benzos, the alcohol, the marijuana. I understand that you know those have all been abused by college students for years and years. But what about the painkillers? That sounds newer to me. Is there any relation possibly with more kids using painkillers because their parents are using more painkillers?
1: Well, I think definitely access. Uh, Parents have it. Kids take out of parent's uh, medicine cabinets. Uh, Kids are prescribed these more often than they used to be. And back in the early 70s, I volunteered at the University of Michigan... Uh, at the organization where kids came in with drug overdoses and drug problems, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we did see overdoses, and we did see problems, but it didn't seem as frequent. There wasn't the intensity. When kids drank, uh, there was binge drinking, but it didn't seem quite as intense. And, of course, even with marijuana in the, the percentage of the strength of the THC, in marijuana now is several times stronger at least, two to eight times stronger on average than in the 1970s. So it gets people used to that level, and it all is a problem. And I don't know, frankly, what the answer for uh, drug abuse is in the country, and I think it's a whole topic for another show. If anybody has any thoughts on that, please email us at doclearyrobbins at AOL.com. But despite huge efforts, we seem to be sometimes treading water or going backwards with drugs.
2: Well, is it the letting off of steam that contributes to college kids wanting to really binge on the weekends? I know when I was in college, that seemed to be the popular reason for getting really drunk on the weekends. After tests and papers, everybody wanted to just party and forget about the school week. Um, but if the statistics are saying that kids are doing it more and uh, more rampantly than back then, back in the seventies and eighties, why is it? Is is there a lot more stress now for the kids than there was a generation ago?
1: See so I think in the in the sixties and the seventies in college we were under stress. It was probably just as much stress. But I think it's a herd mentality or going along with a crowd. If it's acceptable if most of your friends if just Friday and Saturday night, we know we're going to go out to the bars and binge and drink a whole lot and get wasted, then we do it. If it's not, if it's more uh, we're going to go to parties and have one or two drinks or beer, then we do it. And I think it's just going along with what the norm is for the friends and the crowd. And the norm seems to be around the country now, uh, really a higher intensity. Now on to another topic, drugs off the Internet, uh, there have been many problems with drugs off the internet, and this is a repeat of a theme that we've touched on on the show before, the problem with internet drugs. This current study looked at what was in the drugs that people were offering, uh, ordering off the net, and one of the, the uh, drugs that was ordered, they, when they tested it, it was an older antipsychotic strong drug called Haldol, which you certainly wouldn't want to take in general. And problems like substituting a strong drug like Haldol for what people are ordering is uh, it can be very serious psychiatrically and physically. You know, it's interesting, nothing is really new. Uh, in 1900, aspirin was being ordered through Canada and imported from Canada into the United States because the Bayer Company from Germany priced aspirin much higher in the United States than it was in the rest of the world. Doesn't that sound a theme and sound uh, familiar? Well, just like now, the only thing that stopped aspirin coming in from Canada was that people were dying and it was discovered that they were substituting talcum powder and other uh, other products for the aspirin because it was cheaper to use talcum powder than aspirin. So in 1900, they ended up stopping bringing it in from Canada, and now we have a similar situation where we do get a lot of drugs off Canada from Canada and other countries, and it does save quite a bit of money, but is it reasonable, is it safe, is it regulated? I think in my experience, most of the Canadian pharmacies have been fine, and people have been happy ordering it from the big Canadian pharmacies, Uh, that's not without exception, but I also see people getting Vicodin and Xanax and the addicting things off the Internet in large numbers, and that's a problem because people who are addicted to these medicines often are caught through the pharmacies. They're going uh, in the United States to Walgreens or Osco, and the computer sees that they're getting it from two or three doctors or calling it in by themselves. But if they get it through the Internet, uh, they never get caught until they overdose. So I think it depends on the pharmacy and the drug and the country. There's lots of fakes off the Internet, uh, lots of sugar pills being sold as Viagra or Vicodin. It's buyer beware out there. The other newer problem, too, is that we see steroids and growth hormone uh, being bought over the Internet. And, okay, if somebody is an adult, and uh, they order steroids and growth hormone, and they want to put that into their bodies. Um, you know, that's maybe their choice, even though it's illegal. But we do have teenagers in this country and high school kids ordering the same thing, and that's a, a major problem. Now, in another study in a different area, research suggests that a substantial number of American adults are reluctant to let their kids interact with other kids who suffer from depression or ADD, ADD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, about one out of five parents would not want these kids as neighbors in their kids' classrooms or as their kids' friend. Older children and boys with mental conditions are most likely to be rejected. It's interesting that boys were rejected more often by neighbors uh, or adults than uh, the girls. This troubling pattern, the investigators report, appears to result from perceptions that a kid with depression or ADD may be "quote dangerous." Unquote.
2: Well, you know, as parents ourselves, and for I'm sure most of the listeners out there who have had this um, a situation like this come up, it it's just frustrating to think that some parents would another child in a way to say, well, Johnny's depressed, so I don't want him hanging out with my Billy because maybe my Billy's going to get depressed then. I mean, it it sounds somewhat ignorant for somebody to pass judgment on another child like that. I can understand if there is a child that is being violent and you don't want your child to be physically harmed. I think you have to make decisions on, you know, allowing your child to be with another kid alone but you know, certainly to just make um, decisions off the top of your head based on that, I think, is very harmful, obviously, to the other child and to your own child.
1: We're going to talk more about this subject, more about kids with depression and ADD who are rejected by adults when we come back. I am Dr. Larry Robbins here with Susie Robbins, my co-host. This is a program focusing on health and medicine. You can email us at DrLarryRobbins at AOL.com.
0: We'll be right back. What people are talking about. Let me hit you with some knowledge. This is TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins.
1: Now we're back talking about adults who discriminate against kids who have depression or ADD. They don't want their kids playing with those kids. And it was an interesting recent study. And in the study, the levels of rejection for children with depression and ADD were two to three times higher than those reported for children with asthma or other childhood normal troubles.
2: Aha. You said normal troubles. Is that maybe what there is a stigma against kids that have uh more of an invisible disorder such as ABD or depression versus something that you can actually see like asthma. And maybe that's what scares some parents. I can't see it, but there's something bad about this kid, and I don't want my kid being around him or her. It might come to them too. And maybe that's part of our society is that there's normal troubles, and then there's troubles that aren't so normal.
1: Right. You know, maybe diabetes or asthma is quote unquote normal, but depression, ADD is not. You know, the study looked at uh, the parents' discrimination against the kids, but it didn't really assess why, which would be an interesting other study. Now, roughly 23% of parents said they preferred that their child not make friends with a kid who has ADD, and 22% would not want to live next door to a family with a kid with ADD. That's incredible. One-fifth of parents don't want to live next door to a kid with ADD. Um, now, in my experience, if you ask kids about other kids with ADD, they say that they are fun and like them as friends. Uh, so I think this is a bit intolerant on adults' part.
2: Okay, now it may sound... Uh... Somewhat, like, I can't believe you're bringing this up right now, but absolutely a very good friend of mine who I've known from high school called me the other day. She has a son who's in sixth grade. He has a buddy who's been a neighbor and a friend for years. This child, the friend, has some ADHD going on. We're, that H in there meaning the hyperactivity. Anyways, the friend shoved and then actually slugged my friend's son on the bus the other day was it was a conversation over a girl, so my friend called me and said, "What do you think I should do? Should we you know should my son still hang out with him? Should I call the parents and we talked about it, and you know i, I didn't want to pass judgment on what she should do, but I said, you know if you're friends with the with the parent, maybe you should just call them, the two of you you know talk about it a little bit if you have a concern um, but you know I also said to her, you know maybe part of this is just adolescence and Young boys, boys in particular, want to work things out physically. They they are going to maybe slug each other with those testosterone levels getting higher. These are two 12-and-a-half-year-old boys. So sometimes just the adolescence itself gets in the way of figuring out, is it ADD, is it depression, or is it just boys being physical with each other?
1: And the devil's advocate side is uh, if... Uh, Her son was uh, punched by a kid who has ADD. She's just being maybe protective. And that gets into uh, another part of this study that I wish they had done, which is why do parents not want their kids hanging out with kids with ADD and depression?
2: Okay, not to knock this generation of parents. um, but I think we would probably all agree that this day and age parents are more vigilant in their children's lives than a generation ago. The term helicopter parent has come up much more now than it did 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, think about it. 20, 30 years ago, would, would our parents have been even worrying about that Johnny down the street has ADHD, let alone none of us knew what ADHD was then? Everybody pretty much played with everybody. So, you know... It seems like our society and parents have become much more selective in who our kids play with.
1: Well, that's so right. You know, we grew up in the 50s, 60s. Our parents sort of knew that we were uh, outside and doing something. They weren't really on top of everything. It wasn't like today. Uh, The dads of the 50s and 60s were sort of aware that there were people with littler feet than them running around the house, but not as involved. Uh, as today, but I think uh, the parents of today, in some ways, are better parents. They're more involved, um, but they can become hyper or too involved, which is a problem, too. Now, in another study, uh, they looked at yearning versus grief after somebody dies, say, a spouse, for instance, and this is an interesting study this week that after a loved one dies Yearning or pining is more commonly seen than actual depression. Missing the person or a hunger for having the person come back is very common. The author of the study said that, quote, "...the focus on depression is misguided. Yearning really dominates the psychological picture with a feeling that a part of you is missing and that without this essential piece, you won't be happy." Susie
2: in that um, survey Larry did they were they talking about um, the death of a spouse because I think we have to look at different relationships would probably bring on different kinds of feelings say a spouse who's lost a loved uh, lost their husband or wife after fifty years, yes, I can understand it being pining versus say a parent who has lost a child that's going to be more. Your basic real depression?
1: Well, the study was mostly people who lost spouses uh, of natural causes, yes. It was actually just an interesting differentiation between yearning and pining and actual depression. You know, years ago, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler Ross defined the stages of grief uh, in several great books disbelief is a stage, yearning, anger, depression depression, and finally, acceptance. I think these stages probably are accurate, um, and Dr. Kuber-Ross's ideas have held up. If grief goes on for more than six months without getting any better, we do think about getting into therapy and medications, etc. Now, the next item is yet another study on Botox, which is botulinum toxin for headaches. About nine years ago, through serendipity, just totally accidentally, people getting Botox for their wrinkles notice that their headaches are a lot better. Incredible. And here we are nine years later, many, many studies, and it's actually held up. It it really does work. Uh, I think in my practice I've used it maybe 3,800 times and counting. And it takes about five minutes. People get the shots, and in about 60% of people, headaches are significantly better for three months. Now, there's been a number of positive studies on this and a few negative studies. There's actually been some financial studies. Botox is sort of expensive, but it does save people emergency room visits and medication, so uh, sometimes it actually saves people money. This current study was um, an interesting study uh, out of Italy on people with very difficult-to-treat Severe refractory headaches and Botox worked reasonably well, which that's a tough population to treat. It turns out Botox is or botulinum is very useful for a number of pain symptoms, uh, such as some people with neck back uh, neck pain, back pain, TMJ, for instance. I've even seen several small studies on it for heel spurs or plantar Fasciitis, which can be very painful and difficult. It is expensive; uh, usually costs three or four hundred dollars, on up to fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, but it is relatively safe. Now, Susie, you've had migraines. If you were having a lot of migraines or daily headaches, would you consider Botox?
2: You know, if if what I've I've been taking wasn't working, I would definitely consider it. I've been somewhat fortunate in that. Over the last 10 years, when I started developing migraines, that imitrex, a triptan, has worked very well for me. But if it didn't, yeah, I would definitely consider it, and especially since you get the cosmetic uh, benefit as well.
1: It certainly can help wrinkles, but, of course, when we're trying it for headaches, we're not uh, worrying too much about the wrinkles. But if we can help that, too, uh, that's all the better. Now, in another study, uh, this looked at vitamin D and colorectal or colon cancer. Uh, A number of studies on vitamins have been uh, negative this year, but vitamin D keeps holding up in studies. There was an earlier study on multiple sclerosis where the Army looked at over 2 million people for a number of years. It was 10 or 15 years, and the chance of getting multiple sclerosis in people with higher vitamin D levels was less. Now, vitamin D goes down as we get away from the equator towards the northern climes because we're not on in the sun. We need the sun to convert vitamin D. And in some studies, almost 95% of people are deficient or pretty low in vitamin D. In this study, taking 1 to 2,000, units of vitamin D each day can reduce the risk of colon cancer. The issue of vitamin D helping colon cancer has been somewhat controversial. Vitamin D probably helps several other cancers. But the researchers concluded that higher levels taking 1,000 to 2,000 units a day of D uh, probably does help cut down on colon cancer. The question is safety. Vitamin D, AD. E, these are ones that build up in the liver. They don't just get flushed out of the body, but 1,000 or even 2,000 units of vitamin D a day is relatively small and should not hurt the liver. Now, Susie, I know both of us have had fathers who've had colon cancer. What do you think about vitamin D preventing cancer?
2: Well, I think it sounds great, and, uh, you know, the more we know and the more. Um, if it's, an, if it's a vitamin that can help us, I think that's wonderful. I think we all have to remember uh, as well, though, that uh, colonoscopies are still the way to prevent um, getting colon cancer or finding out about it at the early stage. My understanding is is that you, if you have a family history of colon cancer, you should really have your first colonoscopy at age 40, for people without a family history of colonoscopy, you, you should get your first colonoscopy at the age of 50.
1: You know, for all of us who've had colonoscopies, of course, it's the day before with a preparation that's pretty terrible. And I was saying, you know, I play a fair amount of hockey, and uh, when I happen to be in a locker room with 20-year-olds, they're talking about uh, drinking and their girlfriends. But when I'm in a locker room with people my age, I... Uh, I'm 52 and uh, or older. You know, we talk about our colonoscopies. It's pretty funny.
2: You know, maybe also a plus for many of us who are always looking to add calcium in our diets. Um, Most of the -the over-the-counter calcium tabs that we can buy now do have that extra vitamin D built in because studies have shown that calcium works much better for you when it is taken with vitamin D. So taking your calcium... You're going to be getting that vitamin D, which can also help with colon cancer prevention.
1: Thank you, Susie. Well, that wraps up today's program. And you can email us at DocLarryRobins at AOL.com. That's
0: D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, M.D., and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.